We finished up the book of Luke a few months ago, and then we did a series on the doctrines of grace, and then we took a break for Christmas and New Year's, and today we're going to start out a new series. We're going to be looking at the book of Exodus. We're not going to be studying every verse in the book of Exodus. Really, the, the title of the series is Christ in Exodus. Uh, th- almost four years ago, we did a study on Christ in Genesis, and um, a shepherd, a pastor, one of his jobs is to feed the people the Word of God, and we have to make sure we're giving you a good diet. And so, not only should we be preaching the New Testament, but we should also be preaching the Old Testament. We should be preaching all of God's Word, the whole counsel of God. So, we're going to spend some time in the book of Exodus looking for Jesus, showing us um, the glory of our Savior there in that Old Testament book. So, this morning, we're going to be looking at Exodus 1, verses 6 to 14, And then, chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Christ our Redeemer. So let's go ahead and take a look at this passage. Exodus 1, starting in verse 6. Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful, and increased greatly, and multiplied, and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. And then chapter 2, verse 23. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Let's take a minute and just pray. Father, we pray this morning as we open this book of Exodus that teaches us about redemption, that we would see our Savior here clearly, that we would see glories that that would help us in just worshiping Him and following Him. So open up our eyes, Lord, to see wonderful things out of Your Holy Word. In Jesus' name. Amen. When children are learning to read, oftentimes we give them picture books, don't we, to start out. They don't know how to read yet, so we give them a book full of pictures, and there might be a few words at the bottom, and we'll sit them on our lap, and they look at the pictures, and we read the few words at the bottom. And that's the way children learn to read. They learn by looking at pictures. Well, did you know that the Old Testament is like a picture book? When God wanted to teach the children of Israel about himself and about his ways, he gave them pictures. 
He gave them pictures of Jesus. Now we call those types. The New Testament calls that a picture a type. So, for instance, Noah and the ark. Okay, the ark that Noah built is a picture of another ark that would arise in the New Testament. The ark of Christ. And in the Old Testament, when people went inside that ark, they were sheltered from the judgment that came upon the whole world to destroy it, and they were saved through that judgment. Well, it's the same with Christ, isn't it? When a man is found in Christ, he's sheltered from the judgment of God, and he's brought safely through. Now, the New Testament mentions many of these types in the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 5, the New Testament says, For Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed for us. So the Apostle Paul tells us that the Passover celebration is a picture, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, speaks about the rock that followed them through the wilderness. Remember the rock that Moses struck and the waters came out and they were able to drink in this big old river? Okay, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, that rock was Christ. In other words, it foreshadowed Jesus. Or how about John chapter 6, when Jesus says, you know, you, you're following me because you want to eat. Uh, you want something in your belly. You want me to feed you the bread. Well, the true bread that came down out of heaven is myself. Jesus is basically saying that the manna that God showered down on the children of Israel pointed to him. He's the fulfillment of that shadow. Also, Numbers chapter 21. Do you remember the story of the people who were bitten by the fiery serpents and some of them died and Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord said, build yourself a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and lift that pole up. And if anybody is bitten by that fiery serpent, if they'll just look to the pole, they'll live. Jesus in John 3 says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So there's quickly four pictures embedded in our Old Testament that we might not understand. But all of those point to Jesus Christ. So my goal, my objective as we move through the book of Exodus is to show you how embedded in this book are many wonderful, glorious, beautiful pictures of our Savior. And I want us to get to know him better and I want us to love Him more, and I want us to worship Him more fervently, and follow Him more nearly. So that's our goal in these series of studies. Now, the fact that the Old Testament shows us Jesus shouldn't surprise us, because Jesus told us that the Old Testament is full of Him. Over in John chapter 5, when Jesus was talking to the religious leaders of His day, I wanted to show you what He says there in verse 39. In John 5.39, he told them, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. So out of the very lips of Jesus, he says, Your Old Testament scriptures, they testify about me. You search them. You think that you can find eternal life just in this book. Well, the book divorced from Jesus doesn't give life. So Jesus says, this book testifies about me. You need to come to me to have life. Not just the book. The book will drive you to Jesus. Let the book, this book, drive every one of you to Jesus because there's life in Him. 
And also in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus had risen from the dead, he appeared to his disciples, and in verse 44, he told them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now think about that. Jesus divides up the entire Old Testament into three categories. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So the law of Moses would be the first five books of our Bible. We call that the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The prophets. Now you've got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the twelve minor prophets. This may also include some of the historical writings like Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. And then the Psalms, that's the poetic books like Job and Song of Solomon and the, the Psalms, of course, and Ecclesiastes, those poetical books. So Jesus took the entire Old Testament scriptures, he divides it into three camps, and guess what? They all talk about him. All the things which are written about me and the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, they must be fulfilled. So when we read our Old Testament, we're not just reading a dry history book. We're reading a book that should shed light on our Savior. It's about Christ. And if you miss that, you've missed everything. You can memorize this book frontwards and backwards, but if you don't allow this book to lead you into a personal, living, vital relationship with Christ the Savior, it's worthless. So we are going to go back way, way back to the book of Exodus to see Jesus. Now, the theme of the book of Genesis is creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 31 of that same chapter, the Bible says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Genesis is about what God did. God created the heavens and the earth. And when God was done... He pronounced it very good. Beautiful, wonderful creation. Well, it's only two chapters later <laughs> where the whole thing goes topsy-turvy and man messes up royally what God had created. God created a very good creation and man through his sin and his rebellion experiences a great fall and it, it, it impinges and it affects everything. Even this present creation that we live in was affected by man's fall. So today it's longing for the redeeming of the sons of God. That's why animals die. That's why animals get sick. That's why plants die. All of creation is groaning and suffering because of the fall that took place there in the Garden of Eden. So the theme of Genesis is creation. Now when man sinned, God had a choice to make. Either he could leave man in his sin and allow him to justly pay for those sins in hell or he could do something about their plight and first john tells us that god is love and because he is love he devised a plan and i'm actually it's not chronological what i'm telling you he planned before he made but i'm just kind of going with this here <laughs> god determined that he would have mercy on a great number of people he would devise a plan to redeem them and rescue them out of their slavery. See, when, when man fell into sin, he became a slave of Satan. He became a slave to his sin. 
And he needed someone stronger than himself to rescue him, to break the chains free. And God in his mercy decided that he was going to do that for man and his descendants. And that's what we see in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is a story of how God sets a vast body of people free from their slavery, their bondage in Egypt. The children of Israel had become slaves in Egypt under the Pharaoh. Taskmasters had been set over them to crack the whip, to make sure they got their quota of bricks made every day. Their life was miserable. They were they groaned under the bondage of this miserable condition that they were in. They cried out to God, and God sent a deliverer, raised up a man, sent Moses to be the deliverer that would take them out of their bondage. But of course, the book of Exodus is only speaking about physical deliverance, isn't it? You see, it's a picture. It's a picture of a spiritual deliverance. What we read about in the physical, in the book of Exodus, is really supposed to help us understand the spiritual deliverance that God has wrought in our lives if we've come to Jesus Christ. And I've told you that the theme of Genesis is creation. Well, the theme of Exodus is redemption. God first creates, and then He redeems. The word redeem means to set free by the payment of a price, or by the payment of a ransom. God is about to set a whole nation free so that they can then leave their bondage in Egypt and come to a place where they are free to know Him and to serve Him and to love Him. So today what I'd like to do as we move through this section in Exodus 1 and 2 is I'd like to bring out four people or, or places and show you how they foreshadow spiritual realities. We're going to look at Pharaoh, Egypt, the children of Israel, and Moses. First of all, let's look at Pharaoh. We're introduced to the Pharaoh in chapter 1. Verse 8 says, Now a new king arose over Egypt. The Pharaoh was the king of Egypt. Just like in the Roman Empire, when there was a new emperor, they would call him Caesar, either Julius Caesar or Caesar Nero or what have you. They were called Caesar. Well, the kings of Egypt were called pharaohs. That was their title, title of dignity. So we're introduced to the pharaoh there right in chapter 1, verse 8. At first, the pharaoh was kind to the sons of Israel for Joseph's sake. Do you remember the story from Genesis chapter 36 through 50, the, uh, Joseph's story, and how God sent him into Egypt, and how that he was raised up from prison to become the second in command, and that everyone bowed the knee to Joseph? Uh, so there's the story of how God, in his providence, sent Joseph ahead to save his family so that they wouldn't starve to death. His family came down from Canaan into Egypt, and Joseph's wise plan, because he was able to interpret dreams, was to save up for this famine that was coming. And they did. They set 20% aside for seven years, and they had this abundance of grain. And when the famine hit, they could still feed all of the people. So the Pharaoh was extremely grateful for Joseph and what he had done for his people. But in the process of time, that Pharaoh died, and another Pharaoh arose, and then that Pharaoh died. And another Pharaoh arose, and pretty soon the Pharaoh didn't know anything about Joseph. All he knew is that they've got all of these 
sons of Israel living in their land, and they began to become afraid because they thought, you know, they're living on the border of our country. If the enemy right next to our country decides they want to invade us, they're going to have to go right through the sons of Israel. And look, they're not us. They're not Egyptians. They're, they're this other nation. And they have grown so fast and become such a vast people that they could align themselves with our enemy and fight against us and they might conquer us. We've got to do something. We've got to come up with a plan to deal with this situation. And so their plan was that they were going to appoint taskmasters over the children of Israel, take away their freedoms, take away their rights, and make them slaves. And so they did. They appointed taskmasters over them. But it says in our text that that just caused them to multiply even more. They just kept growing and getting bigger. By the time Moses comes on the scene, most scholars think there was somewhere between 2 and 3 million Israelites. So there's a huge number at this time. So, there we have the situation. Pharaoh needs to deal with them. And because they keep increasing and keep growing as a, as a body of people, he decides, okay, first he tells the midwives that are delivering the babies of the sons of Israel, if it's a boy, I want you to kill it. Well, the midwives would not do that because they feared God. And they actually told Pharaoh, well, it's just because these Hebrew women are more vigorous and they give birth before we can even arrive on the scene, so we couldn't kill them then. They're already born. And then later on, Pharaoh says, okay, if that's not going to work, we'll try plan B. Every male baby that's born, I want you to throw into the Nile and drown them. So that was the plan. That's how we deal with these Israelites. He made their lives miserable. He afflicted them with hard labor. He made them slaves. He compelled them to build him storage cities. And what I want you to see here is, starting in verse 11, the words that are used to describe how Pharaoh treated the Israelites. I've written them down. These are the words that I see in 11 to 14. Afflict. Compelled. Imposed. Hard. Rigorous and bitter. That was their life. That was their life. They were forced into servitude. Pharaoh was an evil, hardened, rebellious, murderous tyrant. That's what he was. He didn't care about human life. He had no regard for the sanctity of human life. He could just as easily have babies thrown into Nile and drowned as anything, anything else. He didn't care. He was just completely callous to them. And in all of this, Pharaoh is a type of Satan. He foreshadows Satan. He pictures Satan. And let me draw out four different ways in which Pharaoh was like Satan. Satan, like Pharaoh, is a king. Pharaoh was the king of Egypt. Satan is also a king. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. He's a prince. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul calls him the God of this world. He is a God, with a small g. <laughs> Jesus called him the ruler of this world in John 16, 31. He's a prince. He's a God. He's a ruler. He's a king. He exercises great authority and great power within his own domain. 
He's a despot. He's a cruel, murderous, barbarous tyrant ruling over a kingdom. He rules with an iron fist over those who are his subjects. Now also, Satan, like Pharaoh, rules over a kingdom. Satan ruled over the kingdom of Egypt. Pharaoh did. Satan rules over the kingdom of darkness. In Colossians 1.13, Paul says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We at one time were part of the kingdom of darkness. It was a domain. Now what, what, what do we mean by a domain? Don't we mean an, an area over which someone has dominion? Right? This world is Satan's domain. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So what's his domain? The whole world. That's why he's called the God of this world. Satan exercises great power and authority within this world. Now, he doesn't exercise ultimate authority and ultimate power. God alone holds that right. But God, in his wisdom and in his sovereign permission, has given Satan a long leash. And Satan's exercising that freedom. So he exercises rule over a kingdom. Um, in Acts chapter 26, we find the Lord Jesus giving the Apostle Paul his calling. Telling him what he's to do. Let's pick it up in Acts 26, verse 16. <clears throat> I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. Here it comes to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So Colossians 1 speaks about the domain of darkness. Here, Acts chapter 26, Jesus sends Paul to turn their to open their eyes so that they can turn from darkness to light. And what is that darkness? The next verse says, and from the dominion of Satan to God. You see, there is a kingdom of light and there is a kingdom of darkness. Christ rules over the kingdom of light. Satan rules over the kingdom of darkness. A third area of comparison is that Satan, like Pharaoh, has enslaved his subjects. He's enslaved them. Pharaoh enslaved all of his subjects to do his will. It says in Exodus 1 that he wanted these storage cities built, Python and Ramses. And what better way to do that than use slave labor? It's free. Just enslave all these Hebrews, put them to work, won't have to pay anybody any wages, we'll get all these storage cities built, and I wonder, I can't prove this and I don't know it, but I just wonder if some of those great pyramids that have lasted for thousands of years, maybe the Hebrews were put to work to build those too. You know, if there's any public works 
that Pharaoh wanted to be done, he could just draft these Hebrews and put them to work because he had put them into his bondage. Well, do you know that Satan also enslaves his subjects to do his will? 2 Timothy chapter 2 tells us that. Where Paul is speaking to Timothy about uh, a good servant. Notice what he says in verse 26, 2 Timothy 2, 26. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Lost people, unsaved people are not free. This verse tells us that they are on the snare of the devil. Now, if you've ever... I've never done this, but if you've ever uh, set snares out for animals or birds, if they get themselves caught in that snare, they're trapped. They're, they're done. <laughs> it's over. They're dead. They are in bondage now. They, they, they can't get themselves loose. The Bible says that all mankind, all unregenerate people are in the snare of the devil. He snared them. They're trapped. And it also says here, they're held captive by him. They're held captive to do his will. Now what's Satan's will? What would he want people to do? Well, as I thought about that, the, what came to my mind is he, he wants people to live in rebellion to God, just like he is. He wants people to follow him in his rebellion to God. And so Satan holds people captive, keeps them busy, focusing on things that will Keep them in rebellion to God rather than surrendering to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Satan's very good at that. He appoints taskmasters over people, his demons, evil spirits that do his bidding, running to and fro throughout the earth, and keeps people busy thinking about their toys, their homes, their cars, their boats, their computers, their material objects. He keeps them busy, enamored with sexual sin, or their lies and deceits, or, well, like in Ephesians 2, it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly lived, walked according to this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Okay, that's what Satan keeps us preoccupied with. The lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the mind, anything that will divert us away from bowing the knee to King Jesus and following him. And he's very good at that. Over 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says that he has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan blinds people to the glory of Christ, and he keeps them busy fixating on these other worthless things, the things of the world. So that was our history, wasn't it? Our biography before Christ saved us. We were held captive by the devil. We were snared. He kept us busy fixating on anything and everything but Jesus Christ, the one thing that truly matters. And he was very successful until God decided he was going to move heaven and earth and break us free, just like he did the children of Israel. And then a fourth comparison. Satan, like Pharaoh, is bent on destroying his subjects. Pharaoh 
ordered the male babies to be thrown into the Nile River and murdered. He didn't care about them at all. It's callous. And Satan is bent on destroying those, those who are his subjects. If he can keep them blinded long enough, they will perish and they'll go with him into eternal destruction. I believe Satan knows that his end is destruction. And the old saying, misery loves company. Well, if Satan has to go there, he's going to drag as many people with him as he can. He's going to keep them blinded. He's going to keep them duped until they end up in that place with him. Jesus spoke about this in John chapter 8 and verse 44. He says, Satan was a murderer from the beginning. He's a murderer. He also spoke about how he was a liar and the father of lies. And all those people who can callously murder other people are following in the steps of Satan. Adolf Hitler comes to mind. Saddam Hussein comes to mind. And everybody who can callously murder their unborn baby in their womb is really following in the steps of Satan. They're following Satan there, not God. So, Pharaoh points to Satan. Well, if that's true, what about Egypt? What would Egypt point us to? What's it a picture of? I believe Egypt is a type of the world. You remember just say, or Pharaoh ruled over Egypt. That was his domain. That was the area in which he had authority and power was over the subjects there in Egypt. Well, the world is that area, that sphere over which Satan has dominion. Remember, he's the god of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. The ruler of this world. And that's why we can't give the world our heart. Satan rules the world. We can't give the world our affections. Because this is not... This present world is not that place that Christ wants us to give our affections and our heart. He wants us to give it to Christ and our allegiance to Jesus Christ and His kingdom. James says in James 4.4, he says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, why would he call us adulteresses? Have you ever wondered about that? Someone who loves the world is an adulteress? Well, an adulteress is someone who's unfaithful to her husband, right? She's shacking up with some other man. She's broken her marriage covenant. God is saying here that if we give our heart to the world, we're being unfaithful to Jesus Christ. We're being unfaithful to God. We've committing spiritual adultery. We're being unfaithful to the covenant. We were baptized, and in our baptism, we pledged to give ourselves to Christ all the days of our life. We've gone away from that covenant. We've broken it, and we've given our lives. We've given our heart back to the world. And that's why we can't become friends of the world. If we do that, this text tells us we make ourselves an enemy of God. And none of us want to be in that position of an enemy of God. And John tells us in 1 John 2... He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And this world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God is going to abide forever. 
So we have to be very careful. Now, there are things in this world that we can appreciate and enjoy. But as we've been learning in our men's study, we need to do those things for Christ's sake. Find a way that we can bring glory to God as we enjoy the things of the world. Like, one of the things I enjoy is going on trips with my wife. Just really enjoy that. What, what a, I love it. <laughs> but, but if I get so wrapped up in that and forget Jesus, then I become a friend of the world. And I'm making this thing that I, that my heart is fixed on my ultimate instead of Christ. And my heart's now fixed on the world rather than Jesus. So we need to find ways that we can enjoy God's good gifts to us. And there are many, but we give him the praise. We give him the thanks, and we do those things in moderation rather than being all-consuming to us. So, Egypt, a type of the world. Now, notice Pharaoh had no authority but in Egypt. Pharaoh couldn't rule over in Babylon. He couldn't go down to Ethiopia and rule because he didn't have any dominion there. His dominion extended only within that realm of Egypt. And Satan's authority extends only in the world. It does not extend to Christians because Jesus said that they are not of the world. So either you are of the world and you're lost, or you are not of the world and you were saved. Satan has no authority to rule over a true child of God. Now, if he is having influence in your life, it's not because you have to give in to that influence. This is something you really need to believe. It's because you are volu- you're listening to his lies. Remember, he's the liar and the father of lies, and he's lying to you, and you are believing the lies of the enemy. What you need to do is go back to the word of God and believe what God has said, the promises of God, and put your faith there. So yes, Pharaoh had no authority but in Egypt. It would be like somebody coming into the bridge one Sunday morning and start barking out orders and telling us, I don't like meeting at 10 o'clock. We're going to start meeting at 2. I don't like meeting in these ugly old chairs. We're going to get pews. You know, on his first visit, he's ordering us all around. I say, what? who are you? What are you doing here? You, know, you have no authority in this place. Satan has no authority in your life. That authority is Jesus's. You've come under the rule and reign of King Jesus. You're not in the kingdom of darkness anymore. Remember that text in Colossians? He rescued you out of the kingdom of darkness. He planted you in the kingdom of his own beloved son. That's where you belong. You take orders from that new king, not the old one. And if you're listening to the old king, shame on you. Shame on me for doing that. Because we don't have to. So Egypt, a type of the world. Pharaoh, a type of Satan. The children of Israel. Now who would they picture? Who were the children of Israel? The children of Israel in our passage in Exodus were not yet delivered, were they? They were still in bondage when we meet them. They were still slaves. I believe the children of Israel picture God's elect, those that he has plans of mercy for. He has a plan to deliver them, and he's going to. It's just a matter of time. They will be delivered. But at present, they're still under the yoke of the enemy, the yoke of Satan. Right now, their lives are bitter, they're in great bondage, they are afflicted, they are oppressed, they've been pressed into Satan's, or Pharaoh's service, represents Satan, but God has a plan of mercy for them. I want you to go over to Exodus 2, 
and take a look at that section. It's chapter 2, 23 to 25. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. And they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Now I want you to think, first of all, what did the children of Israel do? And then I want you to think, what did God do? What did the children of Israel do? They sighed. What else? They groaned. What else? And they cried out. They sighed, they groaned, and they cried. What did God do? Verse 24. God, even before remember, go back to another one before that. He heard, he remembered, he saw, and he took notice. They sighed, they groaned, they cried, and God heard. God remembered His covenant, God saw, and God took notice of them. When did things begin to change for these children of Israel? It wasn't until they began sighing and groaning and crying. They had to come to the point where their lives had become miserable to them. They had to get to that point where they didn't want to live anymore under the bondage of that wicked king. They had to get to that point where they wanted freedom. They wanted deliverance. And so they're sighing. They're groaning. They're crying out. And God in His compassion saw them and heard them and remembered and took notice. And folks, things will never change in our lives until we get to the point where we're sighing and groaning and crying out. A person will never even become a Christian until they start sighing and groaning and crying. You see, a person will never truly turn to Christ in faith until they see the the wreck of a life that sin has made. Until they become miserable and bitter and and they see, man, my life is such a mess and it's it's me. (laughs) It's such a mess because I'm such a mess. I'm such a selfish person and I affect people wherever I go and that's why my relationships are not good. I, I see such a weakness in myself and that's why I'm in bondage to alcohol or to drugs or that's why I have these illicit sexual relationships in my life. I, I'm just weak. I'm enslaved. I'm enslaved. And until people really see that about themselves and are convicted over their sin, they'll never come to Christ to be saved. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. <clears throat> You know, some people think that they're free. Um, I don't believe that, what you're talking about. You talk about everyone being enslaved. I'm not enslaved. I can do whatever I want. Anytime I want, I can just change whatever I'm doing. You know, you should give them a test. Okay, I'll give you a test. For the next 24 hours, I I want you to not have any selfish thoughts, any selfish words, or any selfish deeds. Just 24 hours. That's all I... They'll come back to you the next day and say, you're right. (laughs) Because I I am a selfish person and I can't change it. No matter how much I want to or how hard I try, I can't free myself from myself. My nature is the nature of a sinner. And I'm in bondage to that nature. That's who I am. 
And only a power greater than me can change me from the inside. I can't change his old heart. I'm, I'm born with it. And unless someone outside breaks through into this old heart, I'll forever remain the same sinning person. So a person will never be saved until they come to the place that the children of Israel did. Are you in earnest to be delivered from your slavery? Do you want freedom? Do you want to be free from Satan's rule and influence and authority over your life? Are you in earnest about that? If you're not a Christian, I'm not talking about saying the sinner's prayer. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about asking Jesus into your heart or accepting Christ. Folks, none of those expressions are even found in the Bible. We've made them up. They're, it's our popular evangelical jargon. We've come up with these, these phrases. They're not biblical con- phrases. The Bible talks about being converted, being born again, being in Christ, being saved, being justified. Those are biblical expressions. I'm talking to you not about going through some external ritual. I'm talking about beginning to sigh and groan and cry out to God to deliver you. Romans 10.13 says, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So I'm talking about crying as a result of this, this groaning. Oh, Lord, I need you. I can't change me. I am a sinner and I'm in bondage to my sin, and I can't break free. God, would you deliver me? Would you? Is you're crying, you're crying out to the name of the Lord, and God will deliver a person like that. Now let's look at a fourth, a fourth thing here. Moses. If Pharaoh represents Satan, Egypt represents the world, the children of Israel represent God's elect, well, who does Moses represent? Any guesses out there? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He was the one God raised up to deliver His people, Israel. And Jesus is the one that God has raised up to deliver His people, His church, His body. Moses was a human deliverer. Jesus is a divine deliverer for the people of God. Now, how is Moses a picture of Christ? I'm going to go through 21 different parallels real quick. You won't have time to write these down, but if you want the list later, I will email it to you or whatever you want. (laughs) Number one, both were born at a time when Israel was under foreign domination. Moses was born under Egyptian bondage. Jesus was born under Roman bondage. Number two, both were supernaturally protected at their birth. Remember how Moses was put into the basket? Remember how Jesus, his, his parents took him into Egypt to flee when Herod was going to have all the babies killed? Number three, both spent time in the wilderness before taking on their callings. Number four, both were rejected by their brethren. Five, both dealt with wicked kings, either Pharaoh or Herod. Six, both dealt with people that had hardened their hearts. Jesus spoke about that in John 12. It's all the way through the book of Exodus, how the Pharaoh had hardened his heart. Seven, both had the world offered to them. Moses, because he was the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he was next in line to becoming king. One day he would rule over that entire kingdom. He had the world offered to him. Satan offered the world to Jesus, didn't he? 
He took him up to a mountain, showed him the glories of the world, and offered it all to him if he would just bow down and worship him. Eight, both were shepherds. Nine, both fasted for 40 days. Ten, both were meek. Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth, the Bible says. Jesus says, I am humble in heart, in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Number 11, both brought God's law. Moses brought God's Old Testament law. Jesus brought the new law, the law of love, the new commandment I give unto you. Number 12, both worked miracles. 13, both fed hungry people in a wilderness. 14, both provided water for thirsty people. Jesus provides that living water. Moses provided regular H2O, but both provided water for people. 15, both sent out 12 men. Moses sent out the 12 spies. Jesus sent out his 12 apostles. 16, both were called God's servant. 17, both were prophets. 18, both were the subject of controversies concerning their dead bodies. That's an interesting one. In Jude, it says that Michael, the archangel, had this dispute with Satan over the body of Moses. We don't know much about that, but it's tucked away there in the book of Jude. Well, of course, there was controversy over Jesus' dead body, wasn't it? Some people said he rose, some say he didn't. There's this controversy going on. 19, both interceded for their people. Moses interceded when the people worshipped the golden calf. Jesus, in John 17, worships for his people. I'm sorry, he, he not worships, he intercedes for his people. Number 20, both appointed 70 men. Mo Moses appointed the 70 elders of Israel. Jesus appointed 70 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him. And number 21, both were sent to free their people from bondage. So there's these uncanny parallels between these two men. And I think they're put there to help us see something of a Christ figure in Moses. The, the pre-Christ, you might say, the, the one delivering his people out of Egypt foreshadows a greater than Moses who would come and deliver his people out of this world. Galatians 1 talks about how he delivers us out of this present evil age and he delivers us right into the presence of God himself. Now, what did a person have to do to be free from bondage in Egypt? What'd they have to do? Well, they had to follow Moses out. They could just sit down and say, well, I, I don't believe Moses was sent by God. I, I'm not following him. And they would, they would have perished. They would have been left in their bondage. They had to follow Moses. And in order to follow Moses, they had to believe that he was speaking God's word. So faith was necessary. If they truly believed Moses, they would act on that belief and they would actually follow him, which is speaking about obedience. So it goes back to that old hymn, Trust and Obey. That's really the essence of what it means to be a disciple. Trusting Jesus and obeying Jesus as a result of that relationship of faith, that relationship of trust. Now, every analogy breaks down at some point, and of course it does here too, because Moses was only a human deliverer, and all he could do is set people free from a human being who was oppressing them. But Jesus Christ, through his atoning death, does far more than Moses could ever do. See, and here we start to see the glory of our Savior. Because Jesus, in his atoning death, pays the ransom price to set us free from condemnation. By his atoning death, he removes our guilt. He justifies us. 
He washes away the defilement of our sin, the pollution and corruption that we have as a result of sin. He purchases our adoption as sons of God, and He reconciles us to God. Things that are far greater than anything Moses could ever have done. And so my question to you is, are you following Jesus Christ out of slavery into freedom? Is that actually happening in your life day by day? Are you, he's leading you, and if you will just walk in his footsteps, he will lead you out of slavery and bondage, and he will lead you into holiness and freedom from sin, freedom from Satan's tyranny in your life. But you have to become a footstep follower. He puts his footsteps down, and you see the, you see the step, you just put your foot there. Put wherever he goes, you go. That's a disciple. Remember, Jesus said, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. That's what a disciple does. He learns to obey what Jesus taught and do what Jesus did. So, the question I need to ask you is, are you seeing actual transformation in your life? Are you seeing that? Are you seeing real areas where you're being progressively freed from the power of sin. Now, are you, are you praying against specific sins? You know, we talk about our prayer life and all of that. Well, one of the things that we ought to be praying about is the sin in our life. <laughs> you know, especially when it becomes apparent to you, yeah, I've, I've got a problem in this area. This is an area that's not under the control of Jesus Christ. When you go to your prayer closet, talk to the Lord about that. Pray about it. Cry out. Sigh. Groan. Cry to the one who can save you from that particular area. So this is not just a message for lost people coming to Christ. This is a message for God's people too. Because sanctification is a progressive being freed from the old life and being freed unto this new life that we have in Him. Are you seeking freedom from the power of sin day by day? Jesus can do that for you, and Jesus will do that for you if you start sighing and groaning and crying. Now, what are the sins that hold you in bondage? I want you to name them. You don't have to speak them out loud, but in your head, start, what is it? What, what are the sins that are holding me in bondage? What keeps me locked up and afflicted? How are those taskmasters cracking the whip and making me do something that I, I really don't want to do it, but I find myself doing it? Is it Selfishness, or stinginess, or lust, or gluttony, or pride, or the praise of man, or it could be many other things. Fill in the blanks. Try to identify that area of your life that God wants you to be delivered from right now, just in your mind. God will hear your sigh and your groan and your cry. He will remember His covenant he will see you. He'll take notice of you. He will send a deliverer. He actually already has in Jesus Christ. Our business is to look to Christ as the one who leads us out and follow him, trusting him, trusting the power of Christ to make that deliverance in our lives. And folks, he's in the process of leading us, but we're not in the promised land yet either. It took 40 years for the children of Israel to get to the promised land. At the cross, Jesus paid for our redemption. And when we trust Him, we start a journey. We start leaving Egypt and we start traveling to a new destination. But it's going to take the rest of your life to get there. 
however long that is. And through the rest of your life, you're going to be going through this process of being made holy, being made conformed to the image of Christ. But God's desire for you is that you actually make some victorious strides in that journey. He doesn't want us to remain on a plateau for the next 10 years and just settle for this sin that we've allowed into our life. He actually wants you to have victory. He wants you to change. He wants you to be transformed. And He's willing to do it. But are you at the place where you're sighing yet? Are you groaning? Are you crying out? Do you really want it? Are you in earnest about it? It's then that God delivers. But if you're content to live in that situation, that state, don't expect a lot of, a lot of transform, transforming work. You, you need to be at the place where you want it and, and you go to God and you're earnest for it. And my prayer for all of us, myself included, is that we're going to see some real strides, some real growth, some real progress in 2017 when it comes to a life of sanctification. So those old, those old habits, that have held you in bondage for so many years. May 2017 be the year where Jesus sets you free from that habit. Whether it's cigarettes or alcohol, or maybe it's drugs, I don't know. I don't know everybody's personal life. And it can be other things as well. May, may this be the year we actually see this Christianity is real. God can deliver us. He can really change us from one day to the next. He can make us different people. May faith rise in our hearts to believe that Christ Jesus can lead us out into freedom and holiness. Let's, let's go to Him and let's pray. Lord, we do ask for You to be working in us. I know, Lord, that we're blinded to a lot of things. There's a lot of weaknesses and sinful tendencies in our life that we don't even see because we're so myopic. And We pray, Lord, that You would take us by the hand this year and that we would see real life transformation going on. Lord, for some of us, we've been walking with you for 10, 20, 30, 40 years and we can become kind of content just remaining where we're at. We don't want to be, Lord. We want to really properly represent you before this world. We want to really show others what Jesus looks like. And so, Lord, we, we're sighing, we're groaning, our life makes, our, the things we do make our life miserable from time to time, Lord. We confess that to you. Would you make us into the image of your own son? Work in this church family for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.